Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography, with me, Jem Fletcher. This podcast is all about unpacking contemporary photography and helping each other make sense of this ever-changing industry. Today, I'm chatting to Alice Tomlinson. Alice has been working across commercial, editorial and fine art projects for the last 16 years. While she's been exceptionally productive and her work has been recognised and supported by everyone from the Arts Council to Creative Review, she has kept a relatively low profile. That was until 2018 when she was catapulted into the spotlight after winning the Sony World Photography of the Year Award. The award recognised her project Ex Photo, a body of work about pilgrimage, spirituality and faith. Her aim was to document the mystery, intrigue and powerful presence of these religious sites and the pilgrims who went there. Alice spent five years working on the project. She embarked on an MA in anthropology to help enrich the work and spent years experimenting with approach until she found the perfect fit. I'm excited to talk to Alice about her career journey, her fascination with rituals and what she thinks about photography awards. I suppose I've always been a bit of a kind of wanderer myself. Like I've always been very curious as to people's motivations. I've always been a big kind of people watcher. I've always sat in cafes and just observed people walking by. And I'm just not really that interested in photographing people in isolation because I think we all relate to our environment and we all relate to what's around us and really that shapes us. So where we live or where we work or where we play um, shapes really who we are and the other way around. So I've always been interested in the relationship between people and the landscape and the environment that they inhabit and that's why I suppose I've never really been that comfortable or that confident shooting in a studio where suddenly someone's almost not anonymous exactly but they're disconnected from their surroundings so I think part of it is just a kind of natural curiosity and also I've always been quite a kind of explorer myself in new cities and new places I spend a lot of time just on foot wandering and walking and looking and observing so I think it's kind of innate in a way that my interest in the connections we have with with the landscape and the environment. I really wanted to talk, obviously, about Ex Photo and how it all started. And I know you told me at the beginning it kind of started with the Jessica Hausner film, Lords. So tell me about that film and tell me about the genesis of the project. 
Okay, so Ex Voto is a body of work that's taken me five years. It's a journey through three different pilgrimage sites, Christian pilgrimage sites in France, in Poland and in Ireland. And it is really linking the pilgrims who go there, so portraits with the wider landscapes and the ex voto, which are the little objects that they leave behind, of little notes or crosses etched onto stone. So it's really about the relationship between people, faith and nature. And I'm always interested in female filmmakers and independent films. And um, I think I'd read about the film, so I saw it. And there was something about it that just very much kind of drew me in and intrigued me. And perhaps that was because I, in a way, this was a new kind of place for me to to look at and to learn about. The film, in a way, it's narrative driven, but in a sense, not that much happens as well. And it's all about hope, but also about despair and about people's strength, um, kind of emotional and spiritual strength. But it looked like a very fascinating place. Um, Again, the kind of landscape, the the river running through it, the hills, it's right in the Pyrenees. The amount of people who go there filled with hope and belief and desire that this could bring change. So I watched the film and I was very intrigued. And also what particularly kind of struck me was the timelessness of the film. So the hotels, I looked at the credits at the end and I could you could see, you know, the hotels that it was shot in. And a lot of them are, as they were in the film, they weren't sets. so a lot of them feel like they're straight out of the kind of 50s or 60s. There's this very specific kind of aesthetic um, look to them. I mean, there really are kind of huge, you know, eight foot Virgin Marys as you check in at reception at hotels and <laughs> um, you'll go to a cafe and they'll be playing Ave Maria. And um, the whole of Lourdes is consumed, is consumed by, by faith and by religion. And also what struck me about the film was that it particularly um, focused on this organization called the order of malta who are a big catholic order who a lot of the members do come from very privileged backgrounds they're called the knights and dames of the of the order but what is particularly striking about them is the outfits they wear and the women tend to wear these kind of black headdresses and these long black cloaks and the men tend to wear almost boiler suits they look quite military but they look like they're from another world and when i first got there i did feel like i was stepped onto a film set in fact so it was the film that initially drew me there and I'm quite in some ways I'm quite impulsive like I think I saw the film and then I I thought I need to go there but I didn't really know how to go there so I looked and you can get um kind of pilgrim package tours it's a kind of booming industry actually and because I didn't have any connection with the place or, or even with Christianity really or Catholicism um that was an easy way for me to to go there initially in terms of a kind of organised package tour. Um, but it was the film that that sparked that sparked that interest. So how was the package tour? Was that kind of like a recce research trip for well, you? Well, it was quite odd. So I went on my own and I had a charter flight from, I can't remember, it may have been Stansted to Lourdes. And I turned up and there was a kind of chap there with a sign with my name on and it was called Tangmi Tours. Um, and the only other people, I remember this very clearly because this was about five years ago now. So this was the very first trip I ever made. Um, it was two Indian female identical twins from Birmingham. So it was them <laughs> and Amazing. me. And that's um, all. That was it. Yeah. So I thought it was going to be this really kind of large bus organized tour. group bus tour. And it was just the three of us. So that was a bit odd. Um, and I kind of told them about the project I was doing, but they didn't seem particularly interested. 
And then we just got kind of dropped off at this hotel um, by the river in Lourdes. Can't remember the name. There are brilliant names of the hotels. There's a Hotel Solitude, which oh, I've so always good. wanted to stay in. Um, but I was kind of, yeah, dumped into this hotel and it was me, the twins from Birmingham. And I just remember there being like hundreds and hundreds of very tiny Portuguese grannies who <laughs> had obviously come on some big organised tour as well. Um and there was a kind of itinerary that we had to follow. But then beyond that, obviously, I was spending a lot mm-hmm. of time exploring and discovering and wondering myself. But I did feel really on that trip um, very disconnected from it. I did feel like a bit of a charlatan, really. I felt like a bit of an outsider. I didn't feel that comfortable. And it was really I was really not comfortable or confident approaching people either. So it turned out to be much more of a, a recce or a search trip, really, mm-hmm. because the thing that I did get out of it was that I began to to understand how it kind of operated and how it worked. Um, and I got to get to know the landscape because there's a bit in Lourdes, which is a sanctuary in the grotto, which is a bit it's very known for, the shrine really, where people go. But there's also interesting places beyond that that I kind of was able to discover. So the first, yeah, so the first time, I think that was five years ago, it was a bit of an odd experience. And I I think I probably didn't take a single image that I was actually happy with. Um, I was wandering around. I think I had, yeah, I had my old film camera. I was shooting colour film, but I definitely felt a kind of barrier. And I'm not sure whether that was a barrier that I'd kind of created in my head or if it was almost like a, a physical barrier because... I didn't share this deep belief and faith that most people did. Um, and I came back feeling quite dispirited by the whole thing, really, because I, I knew it was a fascinating place, but I didn't know how to tell that story. And at that stage, I didn't really know what the story was. But you still went back. Mm. It's hard to explain. Something keeps drawing me back there. And even now, even though this project has kind of come to a close, I feel like there's more to unearth, really. For me, there was a feeling of kind of otherworldliness, a feeling of timelessness, mystery almost, and also coming from London. Although there are parts of Lourdes that are very busy, there are parts of Lourdes where, you know, it's hordes of crowds with selfie sticks or going to the the kind of um, knick-knacky shops and buying souvenirs. There's masses of that. It's very, very commercial on one level. But there's also a sense of great kind of calmness and serenity and quiet. And people will, they will literally sit for hours and hours thinking and praying. But I would sit there for hours, really, kind of looking and observing and watching other people sitting there for hours. And there was something about the quietness that that really appealed to me. There's something about the rituals that I suppose brings order to people's faith and their beliefs that, that I'm interested in. But then I was also interested in the individual aspect of it. So that's why I chose not to photograph in an explicit way the actual rituals themselves because a lot of somewhere like Lourdes has been documented really heavily in the past it's it is undeniably a fascinating place but most people have focused really on on the rituals and on the the more obviously photogenic aspects of it I suppose like the bathing and the processions and I almost wanted to try and focus on the individual experience but also what had really struck me when I was there was how people connect with the landscape in that way. So I 
wanted to try and explore that idea. One of the things that I found the most interesting about this project is your is the sort of conversations we've had behind the scenes when we've met up and talked about lots of different things. But it's been not just an emotional journey for you, as you've kind of mentioned. It was also a journey of approach. Because mm. as you said, it took a few years for you to get mm. into the right oh, flow definitely. and find the place where the just where everything started to fit together. So how was that process? Because I think not enough people talk about that kind of awkward, messy part of the beginning of a body of work. Yeah. I mean, really, from my last trip to when I started was five years. But I would say it was only the really the last two years that the images actually started working. And that's quite difficult because sometimes I think, oh, God, I kind of wasted three years and all that money and all that time with getting images I wasn't happy with. But actually, I realise now that I almost needed those, even though it was three years, I needed that time to really refine my approach and understand what my take was on this whole kind of idea of, of pilgrimage and the journey. What so, was the turning point? Well, I know I kind of, I, it's quite, in a way, it's quite clear what it was. So I spent the first three years I shot in colour, medium format film, and I was still getting to know the place. I'd kind of done a few portraits. I'd done some landscapes. So I was maybe happy with a, a small proportion of them. But it wasn't really reflecting how I felt when I was there, which was this slight kind of oddness, um, a kind of mystery that I felt when I was in the surroundings. But at this point, after three years, I'd actually got to know the city really well and I'd got to know people there and I'd had a better understanding, I think, of why people went there. And I'd also, as a way to kind of enrich my work, I suppose, I started and completed a couple of years ago an MA at SOAS in the anthropology of travel tourism and pilgrimage. The pilgrimage bit was the bit that I was most interested in. So I ended up writing my dissertation about Lourdes. And it's hard to know exactly how that affected the final outcome, really. But it definitely gave me a deeper understanding of the rituals, of the behaviour there and of its significance. So it was quite good because I had a mo- even though the photos weren't working, I had another motivation while I was there. So I was making a lot of notes. So I did my dissertation about kind of bodily practice in Lourdes and the importance of importance of the rituals, but the importance of the physicality of it, how people will touch the rock, how they'll immerse themselves in the water and that kind of stuff. And I nearly, after I handed in my dissertation and I still didn't really have a, have a body of work I was that happy with, I nearly just thought, oh God, this is never going to work. I need to move on. And then I thought there was still something that drew me back and it's hard to say exactly what it was, but I thought, no, I do need to go back. But actually I need to slow everything down because this is such a a place of stillness, really. I need that to be reflected in my own practice and my own approach and actually bundling around with with a camera just shooting whatever's in front of me isn't working. So I dug out my old, like, really kind of cumbersome large format film camera that I probably hadn't used for 10 years or so. And it's not a fancy camera. It's a pretty basic camera with, you know, one lens and I stuck it in a (laughs) Muji suitcase that I then ended up wheeling around. I don't know why I didn't see it before, but I just suddenly thought this needs to be in black and white. Like what what I'm trying to say needs to be in black and white because it needs to almost be completely pared down and stripped back and there is something that is very traditional about the people who go there and even the the kind of architecture of the place. And when I got back from that trip, I think I'd probably only taken about, I don't know, 20, 25 shots. And I got the contacts back and not everyone was brilliant at all. But suddenly there were a couple in there that really spoke to me and 
I suddenly they suddenly were working in a way that they hadn't before. And that was my kind of breakthrough moment, I suppose. But it had also taken, I'd say, the three years of kind of research to get to that point. So I don't think had I just gone initially with that approach, it would have worked. It's hard to say. Um, But it really took refining it and thinking, I want this to work, but I'm not sure how it's going to work. And um, and almost for it not to work as well in order to (laughs) try and make it work. So that was really a kind of breakthrough moment for me. And after that, the images just had the mood and the tone and the feel that I'd always hoped they would have. And how did you work with the subjects while you were there? So often we would actually, what we found most successful was making an appointment with them either for later that day or for, you know, the next couple of days, because I also had found certain spots, particularly in Lourdes, which is much bigger scale to the others, that I felt really worked for the portraits. So mostly kind of by the river. So you you have this kind of strong depth of field, but you can also see the river and the trees in the background. So I very much wanted to isolate, isolate the people from, from the surroundings. So it was a case of really, yeah, I, I wasn't really prescriptive. I didn't say I want certain ages or men and women. And I mean, it turns out probably that there are more females in the project, um, but that wasn't a conscious decision. There was just something about certain people. Now that the project's sort of coming to a close or this stage of it's coming to a close, how do you, what's your relationship to spirituality and has that changed in your experience? Mm. What I did see in Lourdes particularly, where there are a lot of sick people, is I saw an immense amount of compassion on display and a huge amount of kindness. And I think that is something that we are often lacking in our everyday lives and in our kind of public lives as well. And that was something that really did did kind of move me, that that level of compassion shown in a very public way with these very, very sick people. So that's something that I really, I suppose, admire in terms of what religion can bring, bringing people together, that empathy that people can have with one another and how they can relate to each other in a much more open way. But there are still parts of kind of organised religion that I find very problematic. But I think going there yes definitely made me think think about things in a, in a different way and it be more kind of reflective really about what is this world about what are we doing here and um what's our purpose it's intense it's intense it was quite <laughs> intense there were some very intense moments and um some of the people I photographed were also very intense and it's funny because I've kind of I think I may have said this before but there was something and my assistant kind of agreed with me there's something about the very deeply religious when you're photographing them that you almost feel like they're like looking right into your soul mm-hmm. and that was very powerful actually um and it wasn't a connection that was made through faith really but there was just a very powerful presence that some of these people had particularly for instance the the nuns and the the people I photographed who have just absolutely dedicated their life to God it sounds weird, but I know exactly what you mean. Mm. My father-in-law is is an ex-vicar. He has a very unique way of drawing out personal information and getting you to open up and discuss things you might be worried about, nervous about, concerned about, and he can do it with anybody. Mm. Complete doesn't he doesn't need to know you. He can do it with complete strangers. He's it's just got a sense. I don't know if it's the kind of aura, or mm-hmm. I, there is definitely something about certain people who are very religious that sets them apart from. Than the rest of us mm-hmm. and it does allow you to open up particularly 
to strangers who you don't know, you know, in, in a very kind of intimate way. So that was really, yeah, that was fascinating. I do know what you mean. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. One of the things that I love about your experience shooting this work is this idea of slowing right down and you really let the project breathe and evolve in its own time. And that takes a lot. That takes a lot of confidence. That takes a lot of investment time-wise, financially, as you said. But I think there's something really important there in that the speed of photography is so fast now, the speed of the tech, the speed of what clients want in different parts of the industry, like everything's about now, 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 deliver now. And it's so refreshing to hear somebody have that confidence, I'm sure at times frustration, but you still allow to allow the project to evolve in its own pace. I don't think you can force these things. I realise now that I really love that way of working. I love really thinking about things very carefully, slowing it right down, making very, very considered decisions. And I think with this project, it very much fitted with the subject matter as well, um, or what I was trying to say. I don't know for the future if I'll carry on working this way, but definitely at this time in my life and this stage in my career, for my personal projects, I love I love that way of working. Like you say, it's so important to give projects space. And I think that space is also kind of comes through in, in the actual almost the narrative of, of the images as well. And you can't you can't force it. And that's also why it was really lovely to not take billions of pictures. I mean, the whole project I haven't really shot, you know, I've done many trips, but I haven't shot that much because every single shot has been kind of not exactly planned, but thought through and taken a long time to set up. And I think when you, it's so difficult with personal projects because you can be so wrapped up in the initial kind of enthusiasm of having a good idea and you just want to get out there and you want to shoot, 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 shoot. But for this, it's only when I actually really step back it started working and I think you're absolutely right given giving a project space to breathe is really important but also there's an element of luck in some ways because you never know who you're gonna for the portraits particularly obviously the landscapes are there but the portraits you never know who you're going to come across that's something you can't plan it's something you can't control so there's an element of kind of serendipity there if you like like who's going to be there so how did you know when you were done with the whole project Mm -hmm. I'm aware that it's a project I could have shot the rest of my life, I suppose. And in some ways, I'd have been quite happy doing that. But I went back. I actually went back to Ireland um, in August, so very recently. And it was quite nice because the project had already got some recognition and had been shown a bit. I didn't feel any pressure, really. And I try to avoid putting too much pressure on myself because I think that often doesn't help when you're working on a personal project as well. But I went back to Ireland and I. I shot some more portraits and a couple of landscapes. And I think because I have a book coming out as well, there's a kind of natural deadline that that gives you. So you're working on the book in collaboration with Gost. Yeah. Which is really exciting. And why was making a book so important to you? I suppose I really wanted to try and make something that people would treasure and that they would refer back to. It it felt that it fitted into a book form in a way that probably my other projects didn't so much. It felt like the right outlet for it. But I wouldn't say that every project I do or that photographers do needs to be a book at all. But for this project, it just felt like that was the right right way to, to show the work and kind of do justice to the work. And also with things like sequencing, which is really important um, and which Stu's actually very good at, probably better than I am. 
And I think it's very good for, to have someone else look at your work in that sense. He's really strong at sequencing and editing work. And and that made me almost look at the project in a different way, actually, because he also brought out images that I'd, you know, maybe bypassed or he'd put in certain images together that I wouldn't have paired or... Um, so it, it gave me a new way of looking at my own work as well. It takes a lot to get to that balance of knowing your work, being comfortable with the project and your edit, but then also being open to that other point of view. And that's really where I feel like photographers can hit their stride with photo books. It's like that extra layer of collaboration can really make or break, or not break a project, but yeah. leave it leave it with less dimension. Yeah. And it sounds like you stayed really open to that. Well, I think is... most photographers want to be in control of their of own course. work, which is understandable. But I also think, you know, someone like Stu, who's been doing this for so long, has worked with many different photographers on many different projects and can bring something new to what you're doing, um, whether that's through the sequencing, through the edit, even the design of the book itself. And I think it's really important as photographers that you're open to that as well and not just people with massive experience even your peers or your friends and I mean I don't think I think sometimes it's dangerous to ask too many opinions Agreed. you know because then it can get too complicated and actually I normally go very much with my instincts so when I'm editing my own work there will images there'll be images that jump out and instinctually I'll I'll be like that one that one that one they're the strongest ones but I also think other people can find things in your work that you wouldn't necessarily have noticed and that can be very interesting in terms of the depth of the work as well and finding new kind of threads in the work. Yeah, I agree. So I really want to talk to you about awards. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting yeah. topic. And it's one that photographers and a lot of the studios that I spend time in, there's always a lot of debate about awards. Mm. And this year you won a really big one. You won the Photographer of the Year at the Sony World Photography Awards. So firstly, I'd love to hear how that felt. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was all quite bizarre. Um, I'd never actually entered the Sony before. I'd heard of it. I always felt that it was perhaps a bit more commercial, um, industry-driven, wasn't really, my work didn't really fit into any of the categories. I've always entered a, a fair amount of awards, I would say, and often it. there are some awards I think are really worth entering. There are others I think aren't. I will often look at the jury and the judges and see the kind of people on those and then decide whether to enter based on that um but I'm also very frustrated that so many of the awards are so expensive like prohibitively expensive for photographers to enter I don't think that's should be the case at all um so I have I've entered a fair amount of awards over the years and the Sony as I said wasn't one I'd enter before but I saw that they had a couple of new categories because before it, they'd been quite it felt more rigid so it was I don't know landscape portrait wildlife mm. sport that kind of thing and then this year there was one called Creative and one called Discovery. And it was very broad, really, what they said, but it said something like discovering the unseen in the everyday or I don't know, something like that. And I thought because my portrait, um, sorry, because my project is portraits, landscapes and the still lifes, it, it felt like it was a kind of more natural fit. So I did enter, the, enter that not expecting to get anywhere because they obviously have like ridiculous amounts of people entering. And then I got a phone call to say that I'd won first place in the discovery category, which was really exciting. They had this big award ceremony in April. So they had this big fancy ceremony at um, Hilton Park Lane and it was all kind of glitzy and big screens and black tie and all that kind of stuff. And um, at the end of the night, they said, you know, the Sony World Shock of the Year Award and announced it was me and I had to go up and give 
like fairly embarrassing speech that I've obviously not prepared for. And it was just a whirlwind after that, really. Sounds odd that it was an award that does get a lot of international exposure and you're very much kind of put on a platform. It's not like other awards where your name might be on a few emails, but it was a, it was kind of, um, you're very visible through that award. So when I woke up the next day and, you know, there was a lot of press and then I had to do TV stuff and it was a bit bizarre, but very really exciting. But suddenly you're, you're kind of exposed, like personally as well. Um, and everyone was very, very nice. It's not, you know, it's not like I was suddenly on, you know, the Daily Mail <laughs> website or anything, but it's a different level of exposure that I hadn't ever anticipated and, and never really desired in that sense. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, it was a huge deal to win it. And ultimately, it's really changed my career. It has changed things significantly, I'd say. Um, first of all, just the level of exposure. So, I mean, I've been working as a photographer for way over a decade now and I've always kind of poodled along and done my own stuff and done commercial work and then tried to feed that into my personal work um and actually what was interesting I think with the ex-photo project was that is the first time I have really really committed myself financially and emotionally in a personal project before that I'd always been really worried about losing commissions losing commercial work and this time I was just thought, no, I've got to really, really go for this. So it took a kind of different level of commitment. The book, for instance, with Ghost, I think that may have happened, but it probably has kind of accelerated it, I suppose. Do you feel like doors that were previously closed have opened? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So exhibition opportunities, publishing opportunities, doors that would have been hard to have got access to have definitely opened. So there's there's lots of opportunities that have happened as a pretty much as a direct result of the Sony. It's had a huge effect. It was quite funny for me to to watch from the sidelines and see all of this unravel. And so many people talked to me afterwards saying, have you heard of this amazing new photographer, Alice Tomlinson? And I was like, she's been, been around for ages. She's been grafting. <laughs> yeah. She's been grafting yeah, for no, really, I really have. You know, yeah. a really decent amount of time. And I found that quite hilarious. And it's so symptomatic of the media and how mm. we like to create, you know, a buzz around things. And not that you know, calling you emerging talent is doing you a disservice in any way. But I found that really fascinating. No, I felt the same way. I kind of felt like putting my hands up and going, I've been working really hard for 15 years, but I've never really been like fashionable as a photographer, I suppose. Like there are certain trends that come and go with photography and I've never really fitted or followed any of those trends. I've always kind of done my own thing and in a way you know Exvoto is not just a very personal project you could say it's a very traditional project you know it's not it's not kind of reinventing the photographic form it's not well it's conceptual in its own way but you know in lots of ways what I'm producing are very traditional images that are very crafted and very thought through I suppose it also kind of goes to show that if you you know stick to working in the way you want to work in and stick to projects you believe in and and don't follow certain trends, it, it can really pay off. I absolutely agree. And I think what you just said earlier is absolutely key. You said this is, this is the first project where you really put everything into it. And one of the things as a sort of consultant or, um, well, how I collaborate with photographers is all about trying to help them reach that point. It's And I think that is fundamental. And I truly believe that if you can get to that point, the work will flourish and everything will come together but it takes so much 
to get to that point it's not easy it took me years and I remember even when I worked on a project about alternative communities years ago which I really love working on but it was one of those projects that I just did a day here or there over a year or two and because I was so worried about how I was going to pay the rent and making money to even survive in London I never really committed to it and I remember meeting Simon Bainbridge in all at a portfolio review and presenting him with this dilemma and he was like well you know you could just rent your flat out and go off in a camper van for six months and do this and I thought crikey yeah yeah I could actually well I kind of could but could I I don't know I remember thinking that's great that sounds great okay I really need to commit to this that's what I need to do but then the practicalities of doing that actually weren't really necessarily viable um but I think perhaps with this project as well it was definitely the MA really helped me think through it more clearly and it was a different level of commitment as well because I was really had to be very disciplined in terms of the writing and the research I had to do for that but also it almost took years of being quite frustrated with personal projects not quite getting where I wanted to be with them to think no for this to really work I really need to put I'm not saying put everything into it it's not like I went away for two years and didn't come home but definitely I'd get back from a trip I'd see what I'd get what I'd got I'd plan the next trip. I almost had each trip set out in my diary almost the next year or so planned. It was real dedication. It was. and um, But I felt that, yeah, I don't think it would have worked had I not given that level of dedication to it. And it wasn't that I hadn't been committed to my projects before I had, but I'd also all, almost kind of invented these barriers or these obstacles that in some ways existed, but in some ways didn't. So mm-hmm. it kind of took saying, actually, I can do this and I will do this. I think a lot of, that, a lot of it is emotionally letting go mm. and kind of what we talked about earlier and just this idea of letting the project breathe and not being so controlling, like being present and letting it unfold. And I think that's really difficult when we're all pressured to produce things all the time and, yeah. you know, and time is very precious. And like you said before, you you know, you've got precious of... Pressures of paying the bills and making sure yeah. you get commercial work and all of that stuff. Yeah. So that, for me, is a real aspect of the dedication and the sacrifice you have to make to allow these projects to become what they could be. I agree. And I also feel that for me, and people work in very different ways, for me it's important to have dedicated time to just work on personal projects. So, for instance, I've tried doing projects in London or even in the UK and they don't work because I'll have in my head or a little diary that I'm going to go out and shoot on this day there and something else will come up and I don't end up doing it. Some photographers make amazing work on their doorsteps. And I think you can't discount the fact that particularly in, well, anywhere, but in London, we have stories <laughs> available mm-hmm. to us everywhere. But for me, I need that dedicated time and space away from my real life almost to really, really commit to a project. So that was important to me that I would schedule these trips where I knew for these few days and weeks, that is what I'm going to do. I think it's so fantastic that you're so candid about this because I'm a real firm believer in dispelling the myth of overnight success. Whereas I think on occasion it does exist. Mm -hmm. I think it's really dangerous. And I think it's especially dangerous for young photographers and graduates to walk into the industry thinking that this is something they should aim for, or this is something that could happen. Whereas actually it's all about the hard work, no matter who you speak to really, there's a serious level of dedication to get to the level you're at and get the opportunities that you've got and I think it's really important to celebrate that no and it takes time you've got to be realistic about it and you're right there are certain photographers particularly who become very kind of fashionable or of the moment who might achieve 
what may be considered overnight success, but whether there's a longevity there or not, I don't know. But, you know, if you look at someone like Vanessa Winship, I'm a huge fan of her work, and she's only just had her first big kind of London show at the Barbican, and she's been working, like, tirelessly and completely dedicated her her life to photography for kind of 30, 40 years um, and hasn't been really certainly hasn't done it for the limelight and hasn't been bothered about accolades and awards and that kind of stuff, but has just been driven by this passion to make work. And it's only really now that she's been recognised mm-hmm. for a kind of huge talent that she is. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, I'm just driven to make certain, to do certain projects and make certain work. And if awards and recognition comes along with that, that's, that's brilliant, but that's certainly not why. I do it. You've entered awards for a long time and now you've had this big win. Do you, mm. Has it made you feel different about awards? I feel mixed about them, really, because I think in lots of ways they're very unfair. <laughs> I mean, it's. I'm also aware that a lot of it is luck. Had I entered the same body of work this year, I may not have got anywhere. I mean, I've entered that work into quite a few things and it, it's got into quite a lot of awards, but it's also got nowhere with others. So, you know, a lot of it is out of your control a lot of it is um who's on the panel what kind of interest they have at a certain certain time I think I mean undoubtedly they the good ones can offer a huge amount of exposure and will get your name out there and get your work out there and that is incredibly important if you want doors to open and if you want more opportunities because you could be you know the most incredible photographer in the world but if no one's seeing your work then you're not going to get these opportunities or exhibitions or publications um but I think also you can't be disheartened if you don't get into war you know it's very easy to feel a lot of rejection you know I know people incredibly talented photographers who've entered the Taylor Wessing for practically 20 years now I mean I'd entered it probably 10 years in a row and not got in until last year they give you a huge confidence boost as well and I think you can't underestimate that yeah, I think it's, I just think it's an interesting area of the industry because mm. I think in some ways it's booming and it's become a commercial revenue stream oh, for publications and for different bodies. And that, you know, the number of awards now open to photographers is huge on in terms of a global yeah, scale. Yeah, masses of them. And I, you know, I have this conversation with a lot of photographers, which one should they enter? How, you know, should they approach it in a strategic way? I think it's really interesting that you said the first thing you do is you look at the judging panel um, which I think is a really smart way of seeing, you know, getting an understanding of, OK, are these people that I want to get my work in mm. front of? What could be possible if they do see it? Um, and that's quite a good filter. And I think that's the thing. Photographers are always searching for a filter because it's a huge financial undertaking and time. Some of these websites take so long to upload the work to. I'm always interested to see how people make these decisions, because I think there are so many photographers out there frustrated and not sure which to enter and does it even mean anything anymore yeah it doesn't it doesn't I mean I think um there are some competitions I just wouldn't enter because I don't think the work in them is particularly credible or particularly strong and they're clearly just a money-making machine there are other awards where I think the jury I really respect them I really respect the kind of work that they do they've had very strong winners in the past so there are the ones that I would enter and actually the Sony although Sony are a huge global brand, of course, it is free to enter, um, which I think is is great. So I, I, what I have a problem with is photography competitions that are, you know, 60, 70, 80 pounds to enter, where there's also very little in terms of the actual kind of prize or the award available. 
Um, but I and I do also know some photographers who will tirelessly enter competitions, and that will be their main focus. Um, that's not the case for me, but I do keep a like little list of ones that I'm kind of interested in, and I'll try and check the deadlines and stuff like that. But definitely, the Sony has. It sounds dramatic saying it's changed my life, but it well maybe it has. It's completely changed my career, and I don't know how long that will last. I don't know if it's something that will you know still be very kind of impactful in 10 years time but certainly it's changed the direction of my career for the foreseeable future things have happened that wouldn't have happened Mm -hmm. if I hadn't had that exposure from the Sony most of our chat has revolved around your what is now your sort of art practice your personal practice but you've been an established commercial and editorial photographer for a long time looking forward now um after completing exphoto do you plan to focus more on fine artwork? Is that kind of what you're interested in? I, I would love to, but I'm also realistic that it's very, very hard to make a living from being a fine art photographer. And when I went to my gallery and I kind of spoke about this because I said, oh, should I take all my commercial work off my website and should I still be doing this? And they were like, you have to, you know, we are all our photographers and artists have to do other work. You can't really make a reliable living from selling your work as art some people do but it's still it's difficult to do that so I I think I have to be realistic about things I would love to just be able to do my own work and dedicate the rest of my life to doing my own projects but it's still hard to sell work even if you've got a gallery um you certainly can't rely on the revenue just from print sales so I'm aware that I have to do other things one thing I ask everybody who comes on the podcast is what is one piece of advice you'd give to young photographers starting out I would just say absolutely follow your instincts and the smallest thing can spark an idea so for me you don't have to look for these big big ideas you know some there's bodies of work out there that are are based on something really little that would seem insignificant that then becomes becomes much bigger and you know for me with Exvoto for instance it was seeing a film that sparked something so I think yeah, almost don't overthink ideas and don't think I've got to come up with something that's really conceptually clever because for me, often the strongest bodies of work are a strong but a simple idea that's been executed really well, I suppose. And do just follow your instincts, whether that's a particular way of looking at the world or composing an image. That's what will kind of lead you into interesting projects. That's good advice. Thanks. And then where can people find you on the internet? So I've got my own website, which is alicetomlinson.co.uk. I think I've got a lot of stuff in terms of like the Sony. So if you're interested in looking at Sony, that's the Sony World Photography Organisation. So I've got the the body of work that won me the Photographer of the Year Award on their site. I'm also on Hackleberry Gallery now as one of their artists. So you can see some work there. And I've actually just made some new work because I got a grant from Sony, which will be featuring on their site, I think, in November. Exciting. Mm. And social media? Social media, just Alice Tomlinson, (laughs) A-L-Y-S, Tomlinson. Uh, I've got Instagram and Twitter and that kind of stuff. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. 
feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.